I think that embodies what we are here to do this evening, what we are here to do this weekend, and that is to bring the Lord glory. Well, in just a few minutes, I'll introduce our main speaker for this evening. But what I'd really like to do just for a few minutes is kind of get our thoughts going in the right direction and get our minds where I think they ought to be. Genesis 1, verse 1, which I read a moment ago, this has been called the most debated Bible verse in the Bible, and I would agree with that. Now, it used to divide people into two groups, and it was really simple. Those who believed it and those who didn't. And everybody kind of knew which side of the aisle you were on. But since the advent of the theory of evolution and the theory of long ages of the earth, now there's a third group that has emerged. And that is those who believe Genesis 1-1 as viewed through the lens of evolutionary theory. Now that uh, Charles Darwin has come along, we can really understand the Bible We can really understand what one day really means. It means millions or billions of years. And and we can really understand that Adam and Eve are probably just mythic representations of the first people who evolved, maybe under the direction of God, but evolved nonetheless. But this third group has forged a view of Genesis 1 and 2 that for them, the text of the Bible can be fit into evolutionary theory, evolutionary systems, and now it's kind of backed us into a corner. It's forced those of us who believe in the literal historic nature of the text of Scripture as to see Genesis 1-1 now just as a a proof text against evolutionary theory. And we we take this defensive posture that Genesis 1 is our proof against evolution. Well, I'd like to propose tonight that Genesis 1 and 2 is not primarily about answering the question of creation versus evolution. That being said, it accomplishes that task extremely well. But that was not the debate in the mind and the purposes of God in giving us this inspired account of creation. As a matter of fact, the purpose of the creation account is to answer a completely different question. To settle a debate in the minds of the reader. I'm going to give you that question later, but just to get our thoughts going tonight, I want to give you three proofs that the creation account has a different purpose other than just settling the creation evolution question. Here's the first proof. The first proof that the creation account is about a totally different question I'll just call the original recipients. The original recipients. So we have to go backwards to the 15th century BC and We're with Israel. They've escaped bondage in Egypt by the power of God. They've been officially now formed into God's covenant nation. And 40 years after Mount Sinai, now they find themselves in the plains of Moab. They're across the Jordan River. They're about to go occupy the promised land, which had been given to them, dedicated to them by God. They were to be holy. They were to be different. They were to be set apart from other nations. Leviticus 20, verse 26 says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And more than that, they were to be a witness to all the nations of the one true living God. We might call the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20 the Constitution of Israel. And if that's the case, then the previous chapter, chapter 19, verse 6, is the preamble which says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do priests do? They make God known to others. 
And so that was Israel's job. But Israel would be tempted to worship other gods, to worship the idols of their, their surrounding nations. So what is commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. And this is important for us to understand because in the ancient Near East, the idea of one singular God was basically unheard of. Everybody was a polytheist. Everybody worshiped multiple gods. That's just the way it was. And so here's Israel. They've arrived at the brink of the God-ordained conquest of the land of Canaan, and now God has done something for them. He's given a gift to them. Listen to Deuteronomy 31, verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. The book of Deuteronomy is the record of the final sermons of Moses to Israel as they're camped here on the eastern bank of the Jordan River right before conquest. And now he has taught them what we know as Genesis through Deuteronomy, the law of Moses given by God. And what does he do? What is this gift that God has given? Moses delivers an inspired copy of this text to Israel. This is important to understand because the first people to hear the inspired text of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First people were Israel on the banks of the Jordan River on the plains of Moab, surrounded by pagan nations that would have them worship their gods. Now, you cannot just extract Genesis 1 out of that context. You can't just take it out of the original hearers because if you, if you remove the original recipients from your understanding of Genesis 1, all kinds of faulty assumptions start getting made. Assumptions which the original hearers of Genesis 1, frankly, would think were ridiculous. Let me give you a couple. You get to the assumption of theistic evolution. Theistic evolution says that God created matter, and after that, he didn't intervene until living things just kind of evolved by purely natural processes. Some might go so far as to say that God guided those processes, but the faulty assumption of theistic evolution says to the original hearers, you were too stupid to understand the Bible, so we have to explain it to you now. Try saying that to an ancient Israelite's face. You're going to get whacked on the head with a shepherd's staff. Here's another assumption that you get if you extract Genesis from its original context of the original hearers, and that is that the assumption that that the Bible is all about me, that the Bible is the story of me. Those who try to marry Scripture and evolution of any flavor are really practicing the worst sort of Bible study methods, that of turning the Bible into an authority to support my own belief system. I've got news for you, news for me. God did not inspire the text of Scripture to support a selfish, idolizing, humanistic agenda. And to do so is to violate the main purpose of Scripture, which is to reveal God, not to talk about me. If you extract Genesis 1 from its original recipients, you get another assumption, and that is the assumption that the lower, fallible authority of science somehow has the right to stand in judgment over the highest, infallible authority of Scripture. We get to this assumption, and science is great. We're going to hear a lot about it this weekend. It is not infallible. It's a work in progress in which good, honest science continues to reveal the glory of God as already proclaimed in Scripture. But having science stand in judgment 
over Scripture is tantamount to mankind judging God. That's not science. That's the religion of scientism. That's a whole different ball of wax. So before you even start trying to interpret the Bible with science, the onus of proof is on you to answer the question, who do you think you are to do that? Let me give you one more assumption. When you remove Genesis 1 from the original recipients, the assumption that God was incapable of communicating what really happened in creation, that he's incapable. To to add this whole new layer of understanding to Genesis 1 based solely on evolutionary theory is to denigrate God terribly. It's to put God in the position to say, wow, 19th and 20th century folks, thank you so much for finally helping me explain myself. I was having trouble for the last 3,500 years until you came along, and wow, I'm so thankful to you now that everybody can understand me. Do you know that in most mainline denominations today, Genesis 1 and 2 in Sunday school curriculum is presented as a myth that it never happened. All of these assumptions would not only be completely foreign to the Israelites on the plains of Moab, it would be offensive to them. The original recipients would vehemently disagree that the creation account is somehow all about answering the evolution question. They would say the evolution question was preposterous. There's a second proof that the creation account is about a completely different question. We'll just call this proof the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations. This aspect of Genesis 1 and 2 is generally just completely missed by those who try to redefine the text as somehow supporting any sort of evolution or long ages of billions of years. For well over a century now, liberal Bible scholars have been trying to show that the Genesis account of creation is just borrowed from other creation accounts in the ancient world. Now, to get to that logic, you have to be shallow, you have to be faulty, and you have to be emotionally tied to your theory, so it doesn't work. All that is is an excuse to try to get away from Scripture as God-breathed, as inerrant, as infallible, as inspired revelation of God. But they do bring up a good point. They just miss the point of the good point, and that is that other nations did have creation accounts. They had stories about the beginning. In the ancient Near East in which Israel was emerging as God's chosen nation, beginnings were thought to be crucial. Beginnings established who was in charge. They told people what their purpose in life was. It established the local deity, the local God, as the head of all the gods. And of course, most importantly to them, it kept the current king in power because the current king proclaimed himself to be a representative of this God who supposedly created all things. There's numerous well-known ancient accounts of creation. There's the Atrahasis epic. It's not exactly a, a creation account, but it's important because it tells us that mankind was, to, was made to free the gods from the evils of labor and of producing food on the earth. But their conclusion in the Atrahasis epic is important. It was to establish that the king of the nation is the top dog. He's the big guy. And so all service to the king is seen as service to the gods. In other words, it was to keep the king living in the lap of luxury and in power. That was the whole point of the epic. The most famous non-biblical creation account, the Babylonian epic Enuma Elish, honors the Babylonian god Marduk as the champion of all the gods, as the creator of heaven and earth. And then 
The Assyrians, they weren't very creative, so they just stole the Enuma Elish and changed the names a little bit. In the Assyrian creation epic, they basically just substituted their gods for the Babylonian gods. Then there's the Egyptian creation account called the Memphite theology. This elevated the Egyptian god Ptah. When the, the first dynasty established its capital in Memphis in Egypt, it was necessary to justify this sudden switch in capital cities, sudden switch in power. So what do you do? Well, the Memphite theology says there's a new god in town, therefore there's a new king in town, meaning let's keep that tax money rolling in. That was the whole point. All of the ancient Near Eastern creation accounts served a selfish political purpose to convince the people that the current king was a son of the gods, that he had a god's right to rule, a god's right to receive submission and wealth and total power. They were political propaganda to elevate local gods and thus elevate local kings. And little Israel on the plains of Moab, on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, they're surrounded by not only these nations, but they're surrounded by nations, listen, that already had creation accounts. And so before being surrounded by these nations with their false gods and creation accounts, God graciously gave Israel the real story. He gave them the real story. In fact, the Genesis account describes God as creating all the things that are supposedly to be worshipped by all these people in the ancient Near East. Israel had just left Egypt where Egyptians worshipped Ra, the supreme sun god, Khonsu, the moon god. They'd be entering the land well-versed in Babylonian star worship. The Enuma Elish says that the stars were pre-existent god-like figures that were organized by Marduk. But when you read the Genesis account of creation that we just read, how does God treat the sun and the moon and the stars which were representatives of these false gods in many ancient Near Eastern peoples? God doesn't even directly name them. He says in Genesis 1, 16, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He just reduced the sun and the moon to two big light bulbs. And how much attention to the stars does the creation account give? Less than half a verse. It's a footnote. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And that's it. The billions of stars in the universe, they didn't even write a full sentence. Two words in Hebrew is all they get. Why? Because Scripture downplays their significance. Oh, yeah, those are those giant things that I made and that I put there and that I named. The sun and the moon and the stars are not deities to be worshipped. They are things created by the one true living God. So the surrounding nations were going to try to draw Israel into idolatry, draw them into spiritual adultery. So God has given them the account which tells the only true story of creation and puts down and discredits and disqualifies all other stories at the beginning. Why? All so that God's people would walk with him and him alone because he is a jealous God. Listen. Do you understand that evolution is simply another Enuma Elish? It's another creation epic created so that people 
will worship the so-called creator, which in this case happens to be mathematical chance plus humanity itself, since survival of the fittest is apparently the linchpin of evolution, and since humanity has apparently ended up at the top of the food chain, then mankind must be God. Evolution is nothing more than the creation epic of self-worship. That's all it is. Let me give you one more proof briefly that the creation account is about a completely different question, and that is the glory of God. The glory of God. Genesis 1 says that God made everything, including those things worshipped by the surrounding peoples. In fact, Scripture repeatedly asserts that God is above all other gods. Psalm 95, 96, 97, 135, 1 Chronicles 16, God is above all gods. Not only does Scripture assert that God alone deserves glory and honor, but the Bible connects His glory with His act of creation. They go together. 2 Kings 19.15, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. God's glory, God as creator. They go together. They're a unit. And so to even consider evolution, you must take it upon yourself to rob God of the glory that is due to him. I said earlier that Genesis 1 and 2 is not primarily about answering the question of creation versus evolution, although it accomplishes that task extremely well. The purpose of the creation account is to answer a completely different question to settle a debate in the minds of the reader. The question is not, is evolution or creation true? The question that Genesis 1 and 2 answers is, how many true gods are there? That's the point. And in the great statement of loyalty and covenant fidelity found in Deuteronomy 6 in the, the Pledge of Allegiance that Israel was taught, we get the summary answer to that question. The question of how many true gods are there? What's the answer? Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Which, by the way, can be translated correctly. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That's the question that gets answered. Listen. The Pentateuch. First five books of the Old Testament, they ought to be rightly considered a unit, a book written by Moses. And the Pentateuch is bookended by the same plea to believe in the one true living God. It ends, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and it begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same plea. I could have saved a lot of time and just told you one verse which very aptly explains that Genesis 1 and 2 is a proclamation of the supremacy of God as creator, calling mankind to stop worshiping other gods. Here's the verse, Psalm 96, verse 5. This is the whole point. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. All the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. What then is the natural result of believing that the gods of the people, which, by the way, includes the false god of theistic evolution, the false god of any other belief except what Scripture says, what's the logical result of believing that the Lord made the heavens? Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. 
the logical result is worship. Because if you say, God is not my maker, you are saying, God is not worthy of my worship, and you have quite literally cost your own soul by saying that. The purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 is to answer the question, how many true gods are there? And the answer is, in the beginning, God, the one true and living God, created the heavens and the earth. One more thing. I understand that many people who profess faith in Christ and say they have trouble believing Genesis 1 and 2, I understand that they also will say that I believe the rest of the Bible, I just have a problem with Genesis 1 and 2. And my question is, is that intellectually consistent to say that? Can you just cut off Genesis 1 and 2 and say, but I believe the rest of the Bible? Exodus 20. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. Deuteronomy 4, God created man on earth. 2 Kings 19, you have made heaven and earth. 1 Chronicles 16, the Lord made the heavens. Nehemiah 9, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the earth, and all that is in it. Job 12, God gave life to every living thing. Job 35, God is my maker. Job 95, his hands formed the land and the sea. Ecclesiastes 12, remember your creator. Isaiah 44, I am the Lord who makes all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Isaiah 45, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. Jeremiah 33, God said he fixed the order of heaven and earth. Ezekiel 28, God created the angels. Hosea 6 affirms the creation of a literal Adam. Amos 4, God made the mountains, the wind, the morning, your mind. Zechariah 14, God stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Malachi 2, one God created you. Matthew 19 and Mark 10, Jesus affirms the creation of a literal Adam, a literal Eve from the beginning, the first people. Luke 3 affirms the creation of a literal Adam by God. John 1, all things are made through Christ. Acts 17, God made the world and everything in it. Acts 17, God made every nation from one man, from Adam. Romans 1, creation is not a long process. It's a singular one-time event. 1 Corinthians 8, the Lord Jesus Christ created all things. 1 Corinthians 11 affirms the creation of a literal Adam, a literal Eve. 2 Corinthians 11 affirms the creation of Eve and the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel, Ephesians rather, 3, 9, God created all things. Colossians 1 says that Jesus Christ made all things. 1 Timothy 2 affirms Adam and Eve as the first human beings. Hebrews 1, the Son of God created the world. Hebrews 1, he laid the foundation of the earth. Hebrews 11, the universe was created by the word of God. James 3, mankind is created in the likeness of God. 1 Peter 4, 19, God is a faithful creator. 2 Peter 3, 5, the earth was formed by the word of God. 1 John 3, 12 affirms a literal Adam, a literal Eve, and their children is recorded in the earliest chapters of Genesis. Jude 14 affirms a literal Adam. And all the way at the end of the Bible, on the opposite end of Genesis 1 and 2, in Revelation 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. How many true gods are there? 
The Lord is our God, the Lord alone, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And the result is, O come, let us worship and bow down, and let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker.'" 